I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we have, as per usual, we have a, a lineup of different uh, stories for you today. I think all of these stories actually are huge stories, would be sort of leading stories in any other week. But as is so common in our, our current era, um, it's a week's worth of stories, but it's really like a year's worth of stories in a week. But um, Josh is going to kick us off with the latest Trump indictment. Um, we might call it the January 6th indictment, even though the legal uh, indi- legal charges have very little to do with it. They kind of jammed January 6th into it. Um, then we're going to move over to the other half of the corruption in our government. Uh, ben is going to take us through Devin Archer's testimony um, and, and the Biden influence corruption scandal. Um, and then Emily is going to talk us through uh, Fauci's shameless deception. Uh, I, I'm gu- as guilty as of a lot of people of this. I thought he was just a, a very sort of typical bureaucrat and an exemplar of the administrative state, but there actually is something uh, there's a lot of evidence that he is, he is personally culpable um, in a way that I didn't think. Um, and then finally, I'm going to be talking about some revelations in the Tablet Magazine article about former President Obama and his influence on the current administration and whether or not the Biden administration is really calling the shots um, in, in terms of, of our governance or whether Obama sticking around in D.C. has undue influence. So um, with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Josh. Okay, thanks, Inez. So the long-anticipated indictment pertaining to the events between the November 2020 presidential election and January 6, 2021, with respect to former President Donald Trump, has finally happened. So the indictment dropped last week. Trump has already been arraigned in Washington, D.C. He flew down from his club in Bedminster, New Jersey, to D.C. for a few hours. He pled not guilty. The The media has been talking relentlessly about this case, obviously. You have that very similar kind of Trump-Jack Smith kind of 20 feet apart kind of stare down eyeball to eyeball situation like you had at the federal courthouse in Miami earlier this summer when there was the classified documents indictment, the first of Jack Smith's two indictments. So look, the fact that this was that this was coming was not exactly a well-kept secret. Um, you assign a special counsel these days, it seems, not necessarily under the actual meaning of, of the statute that authorizes the, the modern special counsel. But these days, when a special counsel is is authorized, it seems, uh, with poss- with the possible exception of Durham and the Durham reporters, Ben has written on prolifically, obviously. But at least when Democrats appoint special counsels, it seems that they, they appoint special counsels with an end goal in mind, which is to charge their person, charge the target of the investigation, and to try to destroy that person. So the fact that this happened was not even remotely surprising. Getting to the indictment itself, so it's a four-count indictment, so it is drastically fewer counts on a numerical level than the Mar-a-Lago classified documents indictment. Um, Broadly speaking, uh, the counts pertain to uh, criminal conspiracy, fraud. The basic allegation, the basic allegation that that Jack Smith is putting forward is that Donald Trump was was the ringleader. He was the center of a sprawling criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election involving everyone from his inner circle to his Department of Justice to the Vice President of the United States to various people in states as far flung as Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, and so forth there, and that he was committing a conspiracy. Now, there's so much to unpack here, and we have fairly little time. I guess the very first thing to note is that as every first-year law student learns, in in order to have a criminal conspiracy, you have to be conspiring to commit a crime, conspiring to lie or conspiring to to act immorally or to show bad character or bad judgment, that does not make a criminal conspiracy. A criminal conspiracy to to, to collude or commit antitrust violations might be an example of a criminal conspiracy. A criminal conspiracy to to engage in RICO or some sort of massive racketeering ring or, or even drug cartel, whatever. But there has to be some end goal here. But the end goal here is is not a crime. It is a contestation of electoral college electors in various 
states. And the only reason that that Jack Smith tries to kind of prove in his legal theory of the case that this is actually a crime is he tries to show that the scienter, the subjective intent of Donald Trump was that he actually knew that he had lost the election and that therefore he was just trying to to undermine capital D democracy because he actually knew he had lost and he was acting against what his advisors told him. Again, there's so many problems here. First of all, the, the mere fact that many in Trump's inner circle told him that he had lost the election is is effectively totally irrelevant. You could have 99 people with Harvard or Yale law degrees who tell him, sir, you lost the election. And then the 99th or 100th person could be Sidney Powell talking about Nicolas Maduro and Dominion from the grave and all of that. And if Trump subjectively chooses to believe Sidney Powell, as opposed to the first 99 lawyers, then the whole case collapses right there in and of itself. So that, that that's pretty much go, like that's pretty much just totally impossible to prove in open court. Obviously, large swaths of the actual conduct here, no matter how you feel about it morally, involves unambiguous free speech rights. I mean, the very core of the free speech clause, the First Amendment, pertains to political speech, pertains to your ability to, to contest political results. I mean, that is the bread and butter of the First Amendment. And again, Jack Smith tries to get around this. He purports to concede that Trump had free speech rights, but oh, his subjective mentality tended to undermine that. So that's one glaring problem here. There are, there are so many other glaring problems here. One problem that comes immediately to mind involves John Eastman, who I've known for many years now. I think others on this program have, have known as well. And he is named, well, he's not, not named, he's actually an unnamed co-conspirator. I think he's co-conspirator two, according to the uh, unnamed for numbers one through six co-conspirators. They're not named because they're probably trying to work with some to get a plea deal, to kind of turn state witness and all that. And Co-conspirator 2, who again is John Eastman, is invoked here in this particular indictment as a way of saying that his form of constitutional interpretation, what John Eastman said to Donald Trump pertaining to his interpretation of the 12th Amendment and the vice president's role in the Electoral College counting thereof, was not just wrong, but it actually amounted to criminal conduct. But again, the U.S. Supreme Court engages in constitutional disputes all the time. So if they're trying to criminalize free speech. They're trying to criminalize alternative interpretations to the U.S. Constitution. And ultimately, to me, this indictment is just so utterly frivolous that one of three things or some combination thereof has to, has to be possible. And I'll wrap up right here because I'm going long. One is one possibility is which is likely, I think, is that the, the left literally does not know how to do anything other than to orange man bad, right? They've been doing this ever since Russia collusion delusion 2016. Part of that is clearly going on here. On the other hand, one of two things is probably going on. On the one hand, they're either trying, if you, if you, if you take kind of like the Alex Brusowitz kind of, you know, Mar-a-Lago influencer line, they're trying to take out Trump because he's the guy who can beat Biden. On the other hand, which is my take on this, is that the Biden regime actually wants to face Trump, and they know that these indictments will actually get voters to rally around the flag. So I think one of those two things is going on here as well as the Russia collusion, delusion kind of just urge to get Trump. But I'll turn it over to you guys. I've gone a little long here. Um, I guess I'll, I'll pick up here by saying this is probably one of the least dangerous indictments to Trump in terms of the likelihood, and I'll, I'll say why I think that's so, of him getting convicted, although the judge he got is, you know, um, almost certainly going to to make sure that that this sticks on that level. But I just I don't see these charges holding up, possibly even in the appeals court in D.C. For sure, the Supreme Court is just I, I think this is a very legally stretchy theory, um, as Josh mentioned many times, that cuts into fundamental rights. But actually, that's why I think uh, while this is less dangerous to Trump uh, than some of the other indictments, I think this is probably the most dangerous to us um, in, in terms of how it, it, I think it really tips the hand of, of the, um, the way that this regime is going to start to cut into our ability to speak freely in a more direct way than the collusion between, you know, social media companies and, and the government that we've discussed many times, but in a more direct government censorship sort of way. Um, so note, first of all, that one of the charges, right, conspiracy against rights is, is the same statute under which Douglas Mackey was charged and convicted for posting a meme on Twitter. Um, that's 18 U.S.C. Section 241. Um, at the time on this podcast, uh, I, I sort of gave some shade, I guess, to the, the legal right for not picking up that case. I'm going to now more aggressively say that this is, shows that this 
is the hook that is going to be used and in, in, as a way of cutting into uh, the First Amendment, not just for Trump and not just for Mackey, but increasingly. I mean, I, I think we would be really foolish to imagine it would stop with those two people. Uh, I think it shows the short sightedness of many on the legal right that Mackey didn't get the full sort of defense um, that that a lot of these legal uh, groups on the right are capable of giving. Um, and that was because they thought the rest of his politics are icky, which is true and fine, but uh, kind of irrelevant to the danger of expanding this this uh, sort of you know, the statute aimed against the activities of the KKK um, into basically anything that influences or prevents someone from voting, right? Um, you know, welcome to politics, right? If, if, if any lie that any politician uh, says uh, influence, if that is a denial of the right to vote in some way, if that's a conspiracy against rights and illegal, it really does eviscerate the heart of the First Amendment, as Josh mentioned, which is political speech. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the underlying charges, I think this is weak, uh, the, the, especially since there are, are substantial constitutional restrictions um, and interpretation of federal law restrictions from the Supreme Court uh, in terms of what constitutes fraud, right? This is a very expansive version of fraud. That's the other charge is defrauding the government and conspiracy against rights, right? Um, as Josh mentioned, that underlying crime here is just potentially unconstitutionally vague um, let alone, it, it's a very novel sort of construction to charge in this direction. I don't think that this is going to go ultimately very far, although, of course, the, the bias of the lower courts may hold up Trump for a while. But I think the it's, it's very clear that this administration and potentially the regime wants to expand this particular statute, 241, uh, to cut into the heart of political speech on the basis of, quote, conspiracy against rights. And I think we would be very wise to take that seriously. Very, very quickly, I will say in regards not to 241, but to 371, I have sort of been surprised that there hasn't been more criticism of actually how broad that statute is, <clears throat> because I think actually what we're seeing, uh, and let me just let me just read it. Um, let me take a sip of water first and then I'll read it. Uh, it's it's a conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government in violation of 371. The reason I think that's significant, um, and I agree with just about everything that Josh and Inez have said about this being more lawfare and partisan nonsense, uh, but I still, uh, that that is, uh, I mean, if you're looking at Donald Trump potentially knowing when he was listening to Sidney Powell that, you know, she's nuts as as i think he, there are some reported quotes i don't know if they're like admitted in court or anything people have said um and he he just chose to sort of exploit uh the the sort of uh, fringe people uh with novel legal theories even though trump himself knew that some of these cases were nonsense um i think that's unethical if donald trump did it uh but again to criminalize that i think is a, a really serious problem um in the same way that criminalizing the speech implications here is a really serious problem so uh, I, that potentially could be an issue for for trump uh but i'll toss to ben now yeah um i'll cabin some of my remarks for parting shots on some of the specific statutes which are clearly tortured to try and make a case against a president a former president and leading candidate uh, when many of these matters were already dealt with in the political context, including via an impeachment and in a legal context in the courts in the election challenges. But I'll just say a top line, what this indictment does is it chills and arguably criminalizes dissenting thoughts and dissenters. It criminalizes contesting elections, at least if you're on the right. And it is aimed at also criminalizing serving as legal counsel for anyone on the right who would dare contest an election or at minimum, again, chilling anyone from providing legal defense so as to sap the field of legal talent for 2024 and beyond. So this is a massive lawfare missile that goes way beyond uh, Trump. And I'll speak to the illegitimacy of some of the specific charges uh, in parting shots. And with that, I'll just turn it back over, right back over to Ben. Right. So the other side of the coin here is you have, on the one hand, the lawfare jihad against Trump and, by extension, tens of millions of wrong-thinking Americans. And then, on the other hand, you have the protection scheme that has existed for years now to shield Joe Biden via shielding Hunter Biden. And 
that uh, sort of shield has been pierced, I think, pretty significantly by the deposition given by Devin Archer to the House Oversight Committee, as well as a, a long-form two-part interview uh, conducted with Tucker Carlson um, that also added significant color, I think, to what the Biden family was doing in their international influence peddling scheme and Joe Biden's interaction with it. So I just want to kind of tick through some of the revelations that we got having read through that deposition in full and then watch this Tucker Carlson, Devin Archer interview. First thing, top line again, is that Hunter Biden was selling the Biden brand, according to Devin Archer. And what was the Biden brand? Well, Joe Biden provided the core value of the Biden brand. Here's and a direct quote from Archer to Tucker Carlson. The prize is access to power. That's Devin Archer talking about what Hunter Biden provided to his so-called business partners that, as we know, spanned from China to Ukraine to Russia, Romania, and well beyond. Uh, Archer called the notion that Joe Biden had no role or knowledge in his son's business efforts, quoting here, categorically false. He was aware of Hunter's business. He met with Hunter's business partners, and he provides substantial evidence of this, including the fact that Devin Archer witnessed Hunter Biden in, in kind of a neat party trick, take these calls from his father in front of foreign business partners or prospective business partners and put Joe Biden on speakerphone to say hi to everyone at the table and overhear their conversation. Uh, Archer says that in early 2015, when Burisma executives came to Hunter asking for the relief of pressure of scrutiny from the prosecutor, Shokin, Hunter delivered a call immediately to his father and apparently was under substantial pressure repeatedly from Burisma executives to get his father on the horn to make problems go away. Uh, worth noting also, this is, I think, a major key takeaway. Archer says that Burisma would have gone under much earlier, quote, if it didn't have the Biden brand attached to it. That is, had Hunter Biden not been on the board. And when asked by Congressman Goldman, who has been running defense for the Biden family, who is perturbed over this kind of testimony, you know, what do you mean that the Biden brand, that the Burisma would have gone under were it not for the value of the Biden brand? He said, people would be intimidated to mess with them. That is, people would be intimidated to pursue Burisma knowing that they had the protection of the Biden brand, so-called. Um, and, and Devin Archer goes through, you know, on many occasions pointing out instances of evidence of Joe's knowledge of Hunter's business. For one thing, Tucker Carlson produced this letter that Joe Biden wrote to Devin Archer knowing he was, he was Hunter Biden's business partner, talking to the fact that they were at a dinner together and Joe apologized for not making the rounds to come by and talk with, correspond with Devin Archer. Uh, one of Hunter Biden's key business partners in his Chinese private equity ventures, Jonathan Lee, Joe Biden met, it appears had multiple conversations with, and he actually wrote a letter of recommendation for his daughter to get into Georgetown, apparently unsuccessfully. Biden was also at a, multiple dinners with Devin Archer's friends from uh, Moscow, Kazakhstan, and, and beyond. Uh, some of those friends, including the billionaire wife of the former mayor of Moscow, would pay Hunter and his business partners $3.5 million. Another attendee, a Kazakh oligarch, would give Hunter Biden $142,000 for a Fisker sports car. Uh, and apparently months later, if the timeline is accurate, Hunter would connect Burisma executives with Kazakhstan leadership and organize a meeting to try to broker a three-way business deal between them and a Chinese energy company. So the links, ties, and coordination here is obvious, I think, at this point. It's clear that Joe Biden has lied about his, his knowledge of his son's business dealings. He clearly interacted with those partners. The question becomes, how many smoking guns can you point to in terms of policies that Joe Biden undertook? that may have redounded to the benefit of his family's business or been impacted by his family's business. But even setting all that aside, and even setting aside, of course, the co-mingling of business accounts or of financial accounts that we've seen in part evidence of between Hunter and Joe Biden, obviously there is the appearance of rampant corruption here and his family's benefiting off the Biden name, as we've talked about ad nauseum, to the tune of tens of millions of dollars from adversaries and kleptocracy governments. So. All that said, you know, the question is, I guess, at the end of the day, what more needs to be done to open an impeachment inquiry? Uh, and then we can talk about the political merits and demerits to open an impeachment inquiry, which I think are obviously not necessarily as clear cut 
as the idea that Joe Biden likely engaged in impeachable conduct. When you consider that beyond high crimes and misdemeanors, the only two specific charges laid out in the Constitution for impeachment are bribery and treason, both things which arguably Joe Biden's conduct points to. So, uh, I, I mean, there's a lot to say here. This this is a story that will not go away, and it should not go away because it is it, it's a big deal. I mean, to kind of borrow from you know Uncle Joe Biden himself around the time that Obamacare passed, it was a big effing deal, right? And this this is a big effing deal, frankly, as well. Uh, part of the reason that I think it's such a big deal is not just the explosive Devin Archer stuff, which I do not want to kind of uh, minimize at all. I mean, it it is it is really galling. Part of it is you have to kind of interpret all of this as well within the broader confines of the Hunter Biden plea agreement, which collapsed before the district court judge, which we discussed on on a prior episode. And part of the reason that I personally am, am really riled up about some of this is because these aren't random countries that are being invoked here when you know it's not like it's, it's not like these are like random third world countries in like sub-saharan africa or 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 like bangladesh or myanmar or whatever i'm sorry to pick on those particular countries but i mean part of this is involves ukraine which the united states has been funding to the tune of well over a hundred billion dollars just earlier this week, there was a headline that the U.S. has officially signed off on sending M4 Abrams tanks over over there. I'm not sure if they've physically arrived in Kiev yet, but that seems imminent at this point. We discussed that particular conflict on the on this show ad infinitum, but suffice it to say, we are not really getting any closer to any sort of of off ramp for for Zelensky and Putin and the actors involved. The Saudis' efforts, notwithstanding, the Saudis had a huge summit um, in Riyadh this past weekend. It seemed like not not a ton amounted to that. Anyway, um, when it comes to Ukraine, China, obviously, are you kidding me? I, I mean, you know, as Xi Jinping is getting closer and closer, it seems to to a full throttle People's Liberation Army invasion of, of Taiwan itself. I mean, I mean the, the notion that the commander in chief and his son could potentially be compromised when it comes to that particular country, America's arch geopolitical foe. So, again, it's not just random countries involved here. Um, and it's not just Ukraine and China. Obviously, there are other foreign oligarchs and, and kleptocrats as well who are kind of caught up in this whirlpool. But man, I mean, these are a heck of a countries to kind of get yourselves involved with as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite on the in, impeachment bandwagon. I, I, and I understand the, the McCarthy's perspective on, you know, if in, if the documents start coming, stop coming, if the, the spigot is turned off and there's less cooperation, um, then impeachment can be a mechanism to further investigate some of this. And that's where going forward, I'm especially interested to uh, see analyses of Biden's sanctions list uh, versus Hunter's clients and people connected to Hunter's clients. I think when we start getting into territory, Josh's publication uh, ran a, a piece that was very interesting this week about whether Ukraine has compromised on Joe Biden, which is a hugely reasonable and consequential question, given that Biden's administration is funneling billions of dollars to Ukraine right now, whether or not you agree with that level of spending, whether or not you agree with these decisions in our foreign policy, uh, that's where billions of United States dollars are going right now. And so if Joe Biden, say, decided to stop, uh, decided to uh, make different decisions in that war to provide less financial support, to provide less weaponry, um, is, is there anything that folks in Ukraine have on Hunter or on, in fact, the president himself um, that could be influencing United States foreign policy, given the vastness and the lucrativeness of Joe Biden's connections and Hunter Bi of Hunter Biden's connections to Ukraine, and then Joe Biden's direct <laughs> direct uh, ties to Hunter Biden's fortunes, because we know uh, of of how intermingled their finances were, uh, and we know that Hunter was doing some of this on Air Force Two. We know that Joe Biden was at the meeting at Cafe Milano. I mean, come on. Uh, again, like this stuff has gotten so convoluted that is intentionally what foreign lobbyists do so that when things become public it's impossible to explain this uh, in a way that's you know easy to understand and easy to prove so i still am, am cynical about how much this penetrates the public sort of consciousness and opinion towards towards joe biden uh, but i do have serious concerns at this point about how it's influencing our foreign policy yeah um just to wrap up this segment really quick uh brief points right i mean bottom line either there is direct influence happening or some very rich and very powerful people 
are absolute idiots with their money that they're willing to just write huge checks to an obviously like drug addicted sort of uh, volatile random son right of 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 somebody who's in power without really following up on what that money is doing for them i find that pretty implausible uh, but that's really the bottom line here and i think emily's last point is very well taken which is what is it going to take to crack the head in the sand uh sort of position the media has taken on this um i i to that end i could see impeachment hearings being helpful um simply because it's harder not to cover but i mean you would think it would be impossible not to cover a story of this magnitude anyway so um who knows but with, with that i'm just going to push it back over to emily uh, to, to talk about anthony fauci <laughs> Thank you, Inez. Uh, the Free Press, Barry Weiss's publication, excellent publication, by the way, ran a very good piece this week that sort of took a 30,000 foot view on what was happening inside the NIAID over the course of the pandemic and before the pandemic in some respects uh, in regard to not just Anthony Fauci, but his direct subordinate uh, in uh, regard to NIH head Francis Collins at the time. And why this is worth, I think, pausing and camping out on for just a second is, is actually because we have new information. We have new emails. Um, we have those emails we've talked a little bit about here from scientists uh, from their Slack channel, I should say, not emails, showing that they were actually initially in February very, very, very seriously considering the potentiality of a lab leak, not just for the sort of common sense reasons, but actually for some common sense, uh, for some scientific reasons. For instance, looking at, um, you know, the, the spike protein and looking at, you know, the, the nature of the pathogen itself. Uh, and then on top of that, we have a really important new email from from Anthony Fauci that was released in July by House Republicans finding him say that uh, saying that scientists at the Wuhan University uh, were known to be doing quote and this quote is essential gain of function research. So when we look back at this timeline as the excellent story in the free press does, uh, we see what I uh, take my takeaway from it was this picture of, of decadence and shamelessness in the American bureaucracy uh, that is of course, just a consequence of the decadence and shamelessness in our culture. I sent a tweet to that effect. And then after I tweeted that was actually thinking, I think the, the bureaucracy is in some ways worse than the culture. It is more decadent and more shameless than the culture because it is spearheaded by, as Linez often talks about, the, man the managerial elite that uh, has, has dragged a, a wide swath of the country in that direction, has kind of led the march uh, to decadence and shamelessness. But the reason those two words stood out to me is because when we look back on it, uh, we see that Anthony Fauci was funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan for some 40 years at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He has been a proponent and a champion of this research for a very long time. And as we read government emails, what becomes very clear is that they are throwing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars around like it's nothing. Uh, like it's nothing. And the public basically has no insight into any of this in case a world, unless it's the case a worldwide pandemic breaks out and some dissident groups do FOIAs. That is how we know where hundreds of thousands of dollars were being spent. We have no idea where hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars are being spent in other dangerous ways. Uh, there may be some interest groups that do know where that money is going. Uh, the media shows zero interest in it. And the public, which doesn't even know where to look because nobody had heard the term gain of function outside uh, the scientific community before the pandemic, has no idea where to look uh, because we can't expect it to be experts in everything. Uh, and journalists even necessarily rely on experts. There's a death of, of beat journalism. We could talk about that too in this context, but journalism's necess journalists necessarily rely on experts as well to be the intermediaries. And the experts appear to be totally bought and paid for. <laughs> and, and that's even more frightening considering that gain of function, even in scientific circles, is controversial, has been controversial for years, and was still being funded by Fauci uh, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars without much media interest whatsoever 
for this long. Um, the shamelessness comes in where you have Fauci going in front of Congress and talking about how gain of function is, quote, nebulous. That's what he called Rand Paul. Rand Paul referred him uh, to the Department of Justice for lying ahead of Congress after that July email or that email that was released in July where Fauci said gain of function so casually and not, uh, you know, with the, the same approach towards its, its inherent nebulousness uh, came out. Um, so it's just amazing to me that behind the scenes, it's not amazing. It's not surprising. Uh, I shouldn't even use the word amazing, but it is just tragic how behind the scenes you see, uh, you know, bureaucrats, as Inez alluded to, Anthony Fauci looking as like the avatar of the American bureaucracy. I think he is, uh, but he's so shameless in that he'll say one thing to the public and one thing behind closed doors. Um, and, and his motivation for telling the public a different thing is entirely self-interested. And it is entirely predicated on this idea that only he knows best and that he should have control because the public can't be trusted to make a judgment on whether gain of function is good or bad, uh, ultimately. And, and also just that he's, he can lie, he'll, he can lie and get away with it. And you know what he's going to, um, and, and we're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, wherever he wants it to go, millions of dollars, wherever he wants it to go over time. And all of this cover up, let's just end on this point, it cannot be emphasized enough, was in the interest of covering up the United States governments, not the Chinese governments, but the United States government's complicity uh, in a potential lab leak here. So I'll toss it open to the group on that note. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll reprise my comments from the beginning, uh, saying I, I thought, as Emily mentioned again, that he was really an avatar of, of sort of the deep state bureaucracy uh, and an example of why you cannot turn over political decisions that ultimately involve judgment and responsibility uh, to this kind of capital B progressive sort of uh, idea that we can be ruled by experts. Um, but it turns out actually it's somewhat more sinister than that uh, in, in terms of the personal, what Emily has just laid out and what has become clear um, through this reporting from the free press. And then before that, actually, what was the, it was a rolling stone. It was some strange, um, like a strange place for something like this to appear. Mag. New York Magazine, that was right. Um, you know, what has been coming out is this very personal and direct interest that Anthony Fauci uh, was personally responsible for a lot of these grants um, and that he had at minimum a personal reason to completely dismiss and let's not forget censor um, any conversations about whether this was actually the result of a lab leak. Um, so what we have is a, a person making incredibly high level decisions about a pandemic that he personally had a, a not tiny hand in potentially causing or creating uh, that that is, as I said at the, the top of the lineup, I feel like any one of these these four stories we're going to discuss um, is would have it at, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago would have been the kind of scandal that would have engulfed the, the nation's news for a year. Um, and unfortunately, we have so many of them that we can cover for in one week. But I think this is definitely worth keeping an eye on and whether or not uh, Anthony Fauci actually faces any consequences for this. Of course, the cynics among us will say, uh, of course, he won't. Um, but but nevertheless, uh, it's, it's worth keeping an eye on going forward. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm happy we're talking about this, but I mean, maybe I am misremembering. I, I feel like we've known for a while, I mean, like a year and a half, two years, that Anthony Fauci was deeply involved with gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab, right? I mean, wasn't that kind of the whole point of of Senator Rand Paul's just repeated grillings of Anthony Fauci from his senatorial perch. So I feel like Rand Paul kind of got a lot of this information out a, a while ago, but it, it's good that we're talking about it again because it, it's important because it does shine a spotlight on I, I, on corruption, frankly. I'm not sure how else to say it. I mean, the, the, the corruption veering on what the military refers to as, you know, CYA, cover your but uh, a CYA mentality, which is really what like Anthony Fauci ultimately was really was was getting at here is that he didn't want to admit any kind of culpability for the release of a virus that effectively shut down the world, ironically shut down the world in part due to Anthony Fauci's vociferous advocacy for lo sprawling lockdowns, sprawling mandates and various other policies that have not withstood the test of time and that have been empirically disproven. So. I mean, there's really not enough bad things that you can say about Anthony Fauci at this point. I, I would commend to listeners and viewers um, the book that's largely focused on Anthony Fauci that that Steve Dace, um, our, our friend down in Iowa, released over the over the I think it was about a year and a half, two years ago or so. 
um, really just shines a, a spotlight on Anthony Fauci, the man, the individual who is anything other than this kind of pristine, uh, you, you know, this capital S science kind of embodiment. He's anything but that in reality. Finally, I also will just highlight um, there's an organization called called Open the Books, which is kind of dedicated to kind of fiscal transparency and really just showing where every penny of the federal budget goes. The leader of that group is is a man named Adam M. Jeffsky, who has really done some excellent work recently when it comes to Fauci and the NIH as well. So we'll go ahead and uh, encourage you to go ahead and check that out. Yeah, I mean, I think the signs have long pointed, even you know, dating back to 2020 and probably even before then, that there was a massive cover up that all many government actors led by the leaders of the public health establishment uh, and personified by Anthony Fauci engaged in to protect the U.S. government's culpability in working with uh, Chinese actors, by the way, at a facility that the Chinese military is affiliated with uh, in working together to engage in the riskiest of research without the requisite safety. And the fact that we were outsourcing this sort of effort to China in the first place is incredibly sketchy and disturbing and raises questions about what other kinds of joint partnerships have we engaged in and in other strategically significant or potentially dangerous areas like this. Um, so I think it's been clear for a long time that the cover-up was always about the culpability of government officials led by Anthony Fauci here, and they serve to run interference most sadly and disturbingly and disastrously, not only for themselves, but also for effectively the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, I'd also highlight one other aspect of this, which is the public health apparatus's power. It is so massive when it comes to the funds that it doles out for research, obviously, from a regulatory perspective as well, that almost everyone in the business of medicine has to fall in line with that establishment or risk funds drying, drying up, uh, their careers essentially being blown up and ruined. And of course, we've seen this in presses within states to essentially de-license and de-platform doctors effectively to the extent they don't go along with whatever the public health narrative is on a whole variety of issues. And this is ultimately going to cost us literally in life as well as liberty, as we've already seen. So the tyranny, essentially, of the public health apparatus, its power and its capture over the medical field literally does pose existential threats to the life and limb of Americans. And Anthony Fauci does it all under the banner of science, but which in reality is politics. Yeah, on that note, we'll do a hard transition again, because each one of these things is like a separate scandal, and each one of them is a major one. Um, there was this piece that came out widely read in Tablet Magazine by David Samuels uh, in a Q&A with historian David Garrow, who chronicles the Obama administration. It's called The Obama Factor. I highly recommend everybody go read that piece in full. The, the sort of stuff that got picked up in media and on Twitter was uh, the revelation that Obama wrote to his girlfriend about having fantasies about gay sex. Um, that obviously, I guess, perhaps understandably <laughs> was the, the, the takeaway that a lot of people got from from this piece, as well as um, the the revelation that Obama had told the story uh, in his own memoirs about breaking up with his white girlfriend, uh, she remembered remembers it very differently. And over the question of anti-Semitism and whether Obama was going to embrace his mentor Reverend Wright's views on anti-Semitism, um, so both of those interesting as they are about Obama's personal life, um, I, I think really overshadowed the the um, suggestions, strong suggestions in this piece and in this interview that Obama is uh, ongoing. Uh, it has undue influence over this administration. Of course, this is something that back in the day, uh, even Rush Limbaugh and other other commentators back in the day when Obama left office in 2016, it was very unusual that he didn't leave Washington, D.C. It was a break of, of tradition and, and precedent uh, for the former president to stay in Washington, D.C. because of the potential, of course, of many people working under him during that administration for eight years um, were, were going that he was going to have undue influence. It's why we, we have had this modern tradition, in particular, of presidents sort of retiring from public life. Um, Obama has never wanted 
to do that. He has inserted himself both into the primaries um, of the Democratic Party, but but also potentially there's a lot of information in this article that suggests that he is inserting himself into not only this current administration headed by his former vice president, Joe Biden, um, but but also before uh, it, during the Trump administration as as basically a, a key leadership figure in the quote unquote resistance of the deep state and of, of unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., uh, to try to slow walk or thwart the agenda of the elected president of the United States. Um, so I think this is a, a very big deal. It's worth uh, digging further into. Of course, we have a press corps that is entirely uninterested in, in doing the kind of reporting. It, it, it's not uh, lost on me that we have, you know, all kinds of reporting on, on what Jack Smith, you know, uh, every move that he makes uh, in, in terms of indicting Trump and, and of course, uh, many other similar stories. Um, but we, we don't have, uh, unfortunately, any any serious press corps interested in Obama's influence. It has been very under the radar. The last point I will make is that this piece connected to those personal revelations. Um, I think this piece really reminds us what the Obama years really were. Uh, there, there has been this mythological sort of moderate uh, story that has grown up under Obama with culminating with blatantly untrue things like the biggest scandal of the Obama administration was when he wore a tan suit and a few people on Twitter commentated on it. Um, no, the, the big, there were a series of huge scandals in the Obama administration, gun running south of the border, um, the, the targeting, political targeting and weaponization of the IRS to target his political opponents uh, during his administration, um, the wiretapping of the New York Times. Nobody wants to remember that one. Um, and, and I think it really points to, again, the, the some of the, the critiques of Obama in 2008 that were brushed aside by John McCain and by, by the Republican Party, that Obama really is uh, a, a very deep sort of radical leftist, um, that all of his influences growing up are uh, of, of the, the radical left of the 1960s. Um, and and that he, he really isn't this moderate healing figure, although he talked a better game in that regard than many of, of the, you know, sort of progressive figures today like AOC. Um, so I think this is an important piece reminding us all about that legacy of the Obama administration and the way in which it really did kick off our, our uh, sort of banana republic era in many ways um, and the type of politics that we now take for granted. A lot of that stuff really did begin under Obama and potentially is continuing under Obama because uh, he still has enormous influence in this White House and in the last one. And uh, I just throw it out to everybody for comment on any piece of that, uh, whether that's the, the personal revelations about Obama in this uh, or the possibility that we really have a, a sort of shadow government um, that Obama really is. We've all been wondering um, who's running the country. I've always, well, while Obama, I mean, sorry, while Joe Biden is obviously, you know, not capable of, of taking on the full full role of the presidency at, at his age and, and stage of decline. Um, I've always said, oh, it's just it's, it's the same people who are always running the country. It's it's the deep state. Um, this piece suggests that the deep state has has a personal leader um, and that leader may be Obama. So uh, with that, I'll throw it out to the rest of you guys. So I'm really tempted to you know, start talking about Michelle Obama's shoulders and so-called the big mic and all of that, and kind of make this that uh, you know Natcon squad goes tinfoil hat again. But um, you know, I will resist such low-hanging fruit, no matter how irresistible it is. Um, on the broader, I mean, I mean, there are two broader points from Vanessa's comments that stand out here. One is that. I mean, I had personally been of the school of thought for a long time now that Barack Obama is the guy who's really calling many of the shots day to day. And, you know, after this David Samuels, David Garrow conversation, you know, I, I feel pretty vindicated in that. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, I don't I, I'm not implying that every single kind of detail of policy minutia or everything pertaining to the Ukraine war or or, or any or anything else, judicial nominees, whatever. I'm not, I'm not claiming that Barack Obama is literally directing the shot, but it does seem like that he is in very, very close contact with, with many figures in the administration. And that obviously makes sense because so many of these people worked for him. You know, whether it's Rob Malley, whether it's Brett McGurk, uh, the whole Middle East squad. I, I mean, so many people who are who are very important in the Biden administration previously served in the Obama administration, Samantha Power, obviously being a good John, all these guys. I mean, there are just so many examples from, from from which to choose here. 
And uh, I, I've been saying that for a long time, and I, I, I feel pretty vindicated, to be honest with you, after, after this essay. Uh, on the point of, of Barack Obama as, as a leftist, I mean, if you didn't think that Barack Obama was an ideological leftist with Bill Ayers and Saul Linsky and just all this stuff from his upbringing in Chicago, I, I, I mean, what planet were you living on? I mean, like, the evidence was right there in front of your eyes, his, uh, his kind of half-hearted attempts to bamboozle America notwithstanding. I mean, all the evidence was right there in front of us to see this man very clearly for who he was. He was the Illinois state senator who voted against protecting babies who survived botched abortions. You know, if I'm not mistaken, he might've been like the, like the only or one of one or two Democratic state senators in Springfield to vote against that particular legislation. So he's a reprehensible person. I, I think that he is pure scum. I will just say that. Um, I, I, I will also note that he, he, he was um, not a, a full-time faculty, but a lecturer for 10 years at my law school, alma mater, the University of Chicago Law School. And I've heard anecdotally from any number of professors who overlap with him that he was really just despised, uh, various levels of despised and looked down upon by the faculty there because he wanted nothing whatsoever to do with kind of the camaraderie, the kind of like share ideas, kind of uh, that whole aspect of being a law school professor. He would you know, show up Monday morning, leave to do a state standard duties, then go back on Friday. He thought that he was holier than thou. He thought that he was better, that he knew it all. So I, I just think that the guy is pure scum. I really do. Yeah. It, one thing in the tablet article that really comes out is the contrast, uh, because David Garrett's a historian of the civil rights era, the contrast between Obama and the sort of shoes he intended to fill or purported to fill, or uh, people have said that he was filling. Um, there's just something much more self-interested and fame-seeking about Obama, who uh, we, we learn in the piece at one point said he basically just wanted what, what a private plane and a a place in Martha's Vineyard, something to that extent. Um, it, it revealed that you know his his interests were essentially wealth and power, um, and that's his his sort of self described interests. That you know maybe he would say something different in public, but at the end of the day, his, his sort of psychological drive is for money and power, um, and that's that is a contrast. And I think it's a contrast that reflects sort of sadly on the arc of America. And that isn't to vindicate every single you know far left ambition of the civil rights movement so much as, it's, as it is to say that um, at least a lot of folks that were involved in the new left of the 1960s were uh, sincere um, and had ambitions they, they really believed in. And Obama uh, would just sort of advance radical priorities, but uh, for the sake of self-enrichment. And I, I think that's a, a really sad statement uh, that's reflective of something broader. So on the, on the shadow government point, you know, obviously one issue that's highlighted in the tablet piece is that we have a journalistic court that, of course, once again, protects the powerful. It doesn't do any investigating whatsoever because it would undermine their shared interests to know who is coming and going to the Obama house and what they're talking about, et cetera. Um, obviously, you know, Barack Obama's entire goal was to continue effectively serving as the resistance under the Trump years and then serving again in power under Biden. And we know this in part because who launched Russiagate? Russiagate was launched under his administration. That, it, that was the attempt to halt the peaceful transition of power in everything but name. And Obama is never talked about or discussed when it comes to anything relating to the origins of Russiagate. Why? That's part of the cover-up too by the press that is on his side and the people who were his underlings who were going about executing it. Um, so, and on the shadow government or under Biden, it's obvious personnel is policy and Barack Obama's personnel are everywhere in this government, including by the way, Susan Rice serving as the domestic policy head for however long she did serve there with no expertise or history in the domestic space. I always felt that she was his core proxy. Kamala Harris, I believe clearly a deal was cut to make her vice president. I think, and this is all my speculation because Obama viewed her as completely controllable, given her ambition. And what we've seen is the supplanting of the Clinton family as the dominant power in the Democratic Party to the Obama family as the key power in the Democratic Party. And that is reflected in the radical agenda that's completely at odds with what Joe Biden had stood for to the extent he stood for anything 
throughout his career. So Biden has gone radical, and not only by reading the tea leaves, but because he is serving as a figurehead and a puppet for essentially a radically progressive Democrat party that Barack Obama helped usher in. And on that note, um, let's go ahead and transition to final thoughts. Does anybody want to kick it off? So I'll I'll be happy to jump in and just go back to the Trump indictment briefly, the so-called January 6th indictment, where there's no charge for inciting an insurrection, notably, although maybe that's coming in a superseding indictment. And the reason, by the way, that would be really important beyond the fact that if you know, part of the kind of arc of the indictment is Trump did all of these things and thus there was an insurrection and democracy uh, was, you know, potentially imperiled. Um, well, then you don't charge for it. That shows you kind of the disingenuousness of the effort. But also to the extent there is the conviction for inciting an insurrection that would lead to disqualifying him for the presidency, which everyone on the left wants. So we'll see if there's a superseding indictment down the road. And as noted, this is the most inhospitable judge he probably could have possibly drawn there, given that she's called for even longer sentences than the DOJ has called for, for January 6th defendants and had nonviolent offenders thrown in jail for in pretrial detention uh, for months on end while their cases extend, while at the same time they're trying to jam through uh, this Trump case. Set that aside for a moment. One of the things that demonstrates, I think, how disingenuous and, and chilling and disturbing the indictment is is that if you just look at the charges on their face, and of course, you know, we have this running joke, uh, you know, I, I kind of only play a lawyer on podcasts, but not actually I'm a lawyer by training, but just on their face, if you look, if you go to the Department of Justice's website and you look at these various, what the DOJ itself explains about the applicability of these charges, it's remarkable how tortured they are to try to find laws to criminalize what amounted to the contesting of an election that Jack Smith argues constitutes a fraudulent and criminal conspiracy because Trump didn't really believe what he was saying and his actions, therefore, were themselves all fraudulent and criminal. So just a couple of them on this conspiracy against rights, for example. And I think Inez is definitely right to uh, bring up that social media troll Ricky Vaughn, Douglas Mackey case, because that has set the precedent for this, just like the January 6th defendants being charged for obstruction of official proceeding, obstruction of official proceeding is setting the precedent there. If you look at what the DOJ says conspiracy against rights is applied for, it's law enforcement officers overstepping their authority and abusing people, essentially, and then it's hate crimes. That's what it's applied for, according to the DOJ. Here, what they're trying to say is that by contesting a vote that you claim was riddled with fraud or irregularities, and by the way, a vote that we all recognize, even though the courts wouldn't grapple with the issue, elections where in many states laws and rules were changed by authorities other than the state legislatures, unlawfully, arguably, and unconstitutionally, that trying to ensure that there was integrity in the vote constitutes an assault on people's voting rights. In other words, if people were effectively disenfranchised by illegitimate or unlawfully cast votes, or potentially so, that actually dilutes your votes and threatens your right to vote. But what Jack Smith is saying is no, actually trying to challenge the integrity of the vote itself constitutes an assault on voting rights. So it's totally backwards and inapt. On the obstruction of an official proceeding, you know, we can talk about the fact that it's never been applied before to political protesters, that this comes out of Sarbanes-Oxley and Enron, and that the statute itself generally deals with witness tampering and tampering with documents and evidence, therefore having nothing to do with this so-called obstruction of an official proceeding that I guess the Capitol riot was supposed to represent. Set aside also for a moment the fact that Trump himself had authorized there to be substantially more security before January 6th and the peacefully and patriotically comment. Why in God's name would Donald Trump have wanted the official proceeding, which was the certification of the election, to be obstructed? Why would his supporters want to have obstructed that official proceeding when that was the last best chance to make their political case that there were issues with the election and that they should be kicked back to the states? So on its face, it's an absurd statute that's being applied here. It's going to go in front of the Supreme Court, potentially, because it's been applied to January 6th defendants in other cases to create a felony for them that didn't otherwise exist and, and maybe make it up to throw them in jail for up to 20 years. But on its face, the obstruction of an official proceeding charge is absolutely absurd. But it's a it's a pernicious one and a potentially potent one, given that so many January 6th defendants have been convicted on that charge. And then last but not least on the fraud, 
It's worth noting that Justice Clarence Thomas delivering for a unanimous Supreme Court, I believe, uh, in the last term, certainly in a recent term, uh, in this Ciminelli or Simonelli case, he writes that the federal criminal statutes on fraud, I'm quoting directly here, criminalize only schemes to deprive people of traditional property interests. Now, the DOJ, when you look at their write-up on conspiracy to defraud the United States, they also talk about the fact that if you engage in actions that undermine the integrity of the United States, that this statute is about protecting that integrity. But again here, if we're talking about the integrity of the vote and the sanctity of an election, what could be more important to ensuring that you're protecting the integrity of the United States than put, if there are legitimate claims or perceived claims of fraud and irregularities, that you bring those to the fore and that you actually try to contest them using every possible lever. So on their face, again, looking at these laws as a non-lawyer, as a layman, it's asinine that these charges were shoehorned in to fit the conduct that Donald Trump engaged in. And the chill goes so far beyond Donald Trump that I don't even think we've begun to think about the implications for what it means if you're part of the opposition in America to the regime going forward. And that is why this is so devastating and dangerous and every American should be outraged over it. So let me say like one very quick thing to piggyback off that and then I will transition to something else. But uh, that's very well said. I One thing that I, I don't think I properly underscored in, in my opening segment on this particular indictment, I, I, I mean, like, what does it even mean to, like, defraud the United States in, like, a broader, like, quasi-philosophical sense? I mean, like, like, like literally, what does that mean? I mean, we're, t- we're not talking about homicide. We're not talking about RICO. We're not talking about dealing crack cocaine. We're talking about something that is so manifestly and so clearly political in nature. I mean, there's been a lot of talk on the right over the politicization of law enforcement. Well, that has really kind of reached its culmination. It's really reached its natural apex in the form of this particular indictment. And one analogy that I've used over the past week or so when I've been talking about this is that the U.S. Supreme Court has a constitutional law doctrine known as the political question doctrine, where if there is a dispute, maybe kind of the Speaker of the House is like suing the president, it's a separation of powers dispute. There are various things that the the Supreme Court has a term for this. Again, they call it the political question doctrine, where they basically say this is so clearly political, a a, a court of law does not have a legal remedy that could actually redress the situation. Therefore, it goes back to the political process. That very clearly is what should have happened here, is that the, the political check if you you know if you think that what happened between November 2020 and January 6 2021 was as bad as the left thinks it is the obvious check should come in the form of, of impeachment which they tried and failing that which it failed would be either the Republican presidential primary and or the general election so that's kind of the way that I think about this as well but I do want to very quickly touch on something totally unrelated um so Eric Erickson's been writing a few blog posts about something that I haven't seen anyone else cover. And it's relevant to me because I I, I live here in Florida. I actually live on the beach and I, I try to go for a walk on the beach most days. Not I'm not, not able to every day, obviously, but kind of just to clear my head and get some steps in a little bit. And I can tell you as, as, as a South Floridian, the water has been really hot. I mean, like bathtub level hot for like a past month, month and a half or so, so much so that it's almost, it's almost uncomfortable. I mean, you want like a little, like a little coolness, like a little like refreshing factor here. And the media has has been running a lot of articles about this. The Washington Post is really the outlet that I've seen publish a lot of content on this, you know, with all the usual factors, oil, climate change, natural gas, whatever. But as Eric Erickson reminds us, I'm going to butcher the name of this, but uh, over a year and a half ago, I think I just totally forgot this happened. There was this massive, massive underwater volcano in the South Pacific. Again, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation called the Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapai volcano. It was like one of the largest underwater volcanoes that has erupted apparently in modern times. The estimates are 150 million metric tons or 40 trillion gallons of water, which were injected straight into the stratosphere. And the scientific consensus around that time was that global temperatures could could rise about one and a half degrees Celsius based on this level of vapor that was emitted into the atmosphere. And, you know, apparently it could take up upwards of seven to 10 years for all that water vapor to to finally fall. And Erickson's point, which is a good point, is that the the folks who are reporting on this are just willfully ignoring what was the initial scientific consensus under kind of standard Rahm Emanuel, never let a good crisis go to waste grounds. 
You also have to bear in mind here that probably a lot of the a lot of these so-called reporters who are actually reporting on this are, are probably maybe even have their positions funded by kind of climate activist NGOs kind of getting into the, like, where is your money? Where is your salary coming from? That that style of question here. But it really is just a, yet another reminder that our media is fundamentally not interested in the truth of the matter, but is fundamentally interested in pushing an agenda that will serve their interests. And perhaps in the case of these so-called reporters in the uh, pecuniary interests of their underlying NGO financial backers. You know, that's another point that comes out in the tablet article on Obama is how he's uh, reported, or I should say not reportedly, but rumored to be a, a holding constant sort of salons with Biden administration officials in very key positions. And uh, any sort of intrepid reporter could have, uh, you know, staked out his house, as reporters often do, and seen who was coming in and going out. And if that were the case, we may now have a more robust body of reporting over the past three or so years showing exactly how much the sort of Obama apparatus and the former president himself is still running. Running, uh, the Biden White House. And so here again, you have media complicity. You have media complicity in the story of Anthony Fauci. And you really have media complicity in the story of the indictment, which is such, um, it, it is, I, I read this indictment as just an incredible insult to the American people. And that's again, coming from somebody who thinks Trump did plenty of things wrong in the aftermath of the election. Uh, and that there's some legitimately um, like problematic, unethical stuff in the indictment, if it's true, but um, over and over again, it is just treating everybody else like they're an absolute idiot, repeating things that are uh, alleged by Smith to be criminal um, and, and rehashing, rewarming, reheating these same complaints about fake electors without uh, you know, acknowledging that there is some legitimacy to the legal theory that you can have an alternate slate of electors and saying that because Donald Trump was told by some experts he distrusted uh, that this was not the way the Constitution worked, that he was then lying rather than, as the left has said for years, he's like, in their pejorative terms, a Fox News boomer who believes everything um, that is in his favor, favor that some pundit says on TV, which is an easy sort of pattern to fall into. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that Trump is credulous um, and, you know, believes everything he sees from people who support him, like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. Uh, and then on the other hand is is malicious um, and a liar. Uh, so and it, and it's all uh, mendacity. And, you know, it, it, you can't have that both ways. It may be true that Donald Trump did a little bit of both, uh, but you can't be saying that he's getting all these people tripping in his ears and he's just believing them. But then also that he's lying. If he believes them, it's not a lie. He's actually just repeating things that he believes. And that is what the indictment is for 45 pages. It's just a piece of garbage. Um, and the media should have been all over it. Uh, but of course, it was not. And here we are. Yeah, I'll, I'll wrap up by just adding on to a couple points. One, I think we're all impressed with Josh's attempt to pronounce the name of that volcano. I think it went actually rather well, considering <laughs> <laughs> um, they're doing the same thing with the, the Canadian wildfires, right, um, that have been causing repeated really poor air quality in the Northeast and, and elsewhere, um, even all the way down into the South. Uh, there, there are all these stories about how this is climate change and this is going to be our, our new normal. Of course, uh, the other real side of the story, one is is parts of this were arson. Um, as far as I know, that is not climate change when somebody lights things on fire, but also the, the repeated um, you know failures of the Canadian government. And this is very similar to my home state of California to actually maintain the forests, um, even in the way that Native Americans maintain the forests by doing regular burns and getting rid of some of the undergrowth because of a, an environmentalist fanaticism that sees, you know, you must never touch Mother Gaia, that, that human um, interaction with the earth is inherently uh, a sort of negative and, and destructive thing instead of actually uh, being important to prevent massive, massive uh, fires from from ripping through fire prone, uh, fire prone areas. Um, but that I'll, I'll, I'll close just by saying the reason I was out last week is uh, visiting family back in Poland. Um, and I, I wanted to make one remark about it, which is that uh, it really is like going back in time to it's a good reminder that things are possible. Um, that seem completely impossible in our current political discourse to pick out just one aspect it was like going back uh back into the 90s in the united states where uh, for 10 days i saw one exactly one 
a gay pride flag um, hanging from anywhere. There were no businesses advertising it. Um, Poland doesn't have gay marriage, but it does have some basic legal protections for, for gay people, um, including anti-discrimination protections. It is not illegal to be gay in, in Poland, right? But there's just a both cult a cultural predisposition against that kind of uh, aggressive sort of uh, in your face constant making it impossible for anyone to think about anything else walking down the street uh than than homosexuality or transgenderism um that doesn't exist there and and it is very much like going back to the 1990s i think it's a good reminder that actually there is a middle ground um between uh, let's say something that Thomas Jefferson endorsed, for example, which was was a criminalization of homosexuality, an actual um, persecution of of, of uh, uh, minority sexual lifestyles. Um, also, there is a middle ground between that and where we're at, um, where where it has to be injected into the mainstream. Emily and I have talked about this repeatedly on on my podcast. I think this the the really the only form of compromise and cultural compromise that really um, is is healthy for a society on not just this issue but many issues of, of sort of is the compromise of mainstream and counterculture that we we do keep um quite heavy restrictions in terms of what is is injected into the mainstream culture what is considered quote unquote normal um what what is advertised and, and taught by schools and institutions um and what is permitted and what is allowed in a counterculture um, and, and I think that Polya has written the most, um, has written the best about this subject. Uh, and she's indicated um, that, and I think rightly, that it, it injures both, right? That um, there is there's an injury to the mainstream society when parents can't take their kids um, and, have, and walk down the street without seeing some very explicit and graphic, you know, um, allusions to, to uh, sex acts, right? Um, and then on, on the other hand, uh, that countercultures, when, when they have the constraints of the mainstream to push against, actually do become sometimes fonts of, of um, not only liberty, but also um, art and, um, you know, interesting sort of intellectual ideas. I, I think uh, there, there is a way to balance these two things. And it's a good reminder that the way that we have it now and this imbalance between uh, sort of the the every counterculture having to become universally endorsed in the mainstream um, is not the only way to organize a society. So I was reminded of that in the last week. Um, and with that, I think we are just about ready to wrap up. So on behalf of Emily, Josh, and Ben, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman, and I'll see you at the next NatCon Squad. <laughs>